0: Good morning. How are you doing this morning? Good. It is good to see you. We are really glad you're here. Welcome to Life Community, and thanks for being here. Thanks for being here at 11 o'clock, helping us grow our 11 o'clock service. If you're just joining us or here for the first time in a while, we are preaching through the book of Ephesians. To get going today, I'm just going to give you the bottom line right up front, and then we're going to spend some time unpacking that and talking about it. And uh, the bottom line, Paul is going to tell us, is this. He's going to tell us to be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. Paul's going to tell us, hey, I want you to be really careful about the way you live, actually, because if you're not really careful, you will not live wisely. In fact, if you're not careful about the way you live, you're just going to drift with the flow of the cultural Current, and you'll base your life on where, wherever the culture kind of takes you and whatever um, the culture says is important around you. Um, a number of years ago, I lived in uh, San Diego. Uh, my parents were going to grad school out there, and I was a kid, and they used to take us to the beach, and we loved it. And, uh, and I remember we went to this one beach north of San Diego I can't remember exactly maybe Del Mar or something up around there but I remember this beach specifically because there was a really strong southern current at this beach going heading south and so um, we were swimming and playing in the waves and my parents were on the shore because it was cold and they didn't want to get in but when you're a kid you don't care do you I used to go until I was just blue because it's just like so much fun. And you don't care how cold it is. You're just in it. And so uh, my brother and I are out there playing in the waves and trying to catch waves and body surfing, just having a great time. And uh, before you know it, we look up and mom and dad are way up there. And we have drifted with the current way down the beach. And all of a sudden, like, you know, there's not so many people around, and you're hearing, like, the Jaws theme play in the back of your mind. And so, like, you fight your way to the shore and run way up and, like, recenter yourself where mom and dad are, you know, in in safety. And, And I think a lot of times life is like that. That when we're not thoughtful about how we live our lives, when, we, when we're not um, careful about how we live our lives, we just drift with the current around us. We drift with the direction that, that the culture and that life takes us. And before you know it, we end up in places we wish we weren't. I think there's a couple different aspects of the current of culture and where culture takes us. One of those, we'll see if anybody in this room can identify, is busyness. Man, I think this is something we can all identify with. For some of you, you're heading into the fall and you played so hard all summer that you're just like, ah, routine. But for some of you, like, even in the midst of that routine, it's great, but um, your fall is just looking crazy. And it's just ramping up and you feel like an Uber driver driving your kids all over town. Have you noticed, like, for so many, and I do this all the time, I try not to, but I do, Then when somebody asks you how you are, your stock answer is busy. Like we wear it as a badge of honor. Just busy. And that's just the normal direction culture pulls you, isn't it? That you just always got something. You're always on the go. Have you ever stopped to really be thoughtful? To think about when it comes to your schedule, your time? Are you just going with the flow? Or are you being careful how you live? I think another area that the current of culture pulls us to drift into is pleasure. Pleasure. Now, some of this is the drift of culture is pleasure towards whatever feels good and right in the moment. Maybe when it comes to our our bodies, we're going to see some of that in, in a little while here in this passage. So it works itself out sometimes in destructive habits or behaviors, but I think also, and this is like, especially here in western Colorado, we live in a pretty cool spot, right? There's lots of stuff to do. I think it often can also work itself out in living for recreation and enjoyment. Now, don't get me wrong. You need some recreation and enjoyment. Some of you, you struggle with the next one here I'm going to talk about in a second. You need a hobby. Um, You need to do so. You need some recreation. I, uh, uh headed up to Youth with a Mission Cimarron this week, which is where we've got a crew of guys up there right now at our man, man camp, having a great time, uh, getting ready to head back down. And uh, I went up a day early, went up on Thursday because I had a meeting up there. And I, I have something going on with my, my car, like a pulley going out or something. And so I'm like, I'm not going to risk taking that up. So I'm going to uh, rent a car. So I got online, rented the cheapest little $39 car I could find for two days. And I get down to the rental place Thursday morning and uh, I'm getting checked out and she's like, we don't have any cars really right now. All we have is that Dodge Ram or that Jeep Rubicon. You want that? I'm like, yes, yes, I want that. It was, like, the coolest tricked-out Jeep, you know, um, these big ATV tires and hybrid. Like, it, it was almost silent sometimes driving it. And, uh, man, I had so much fun. Like, I, I actually am, like, okay, thank you, God. I was a little stressed, and I just had this, like, big old grin on my face. It was, like, thank you, God. I needed a, a little bit of... R&R. And so I drove that thing all over. And uh, Thursday, went out with a friend, Bill, that was at camp. And we we went up and explored this really cool spot I'd never been to. And this beautiful West Fork of the Cimarron, this beautiful mountain range. And it was so cool and so much fun. So you need some recreation and R&R. It's good for your soul. But sometimes what can happen is like it gets out of whack. And, and we begin to live for recreation, enjoyment, for golf on the weekends, for, for getting away. And it drives actually, when you start, like, when you need a vacation to recover from all your recreation, may, maybe you need to pause and think. When you're so busy with pleasure, with recreation and hobbies, that you have no bandwidth or time left for connection with other believers or for serving something bigger than yourself... I think what you find is you've allowed yourself to drift with the culture towards self-centeredness. Because that's the pull of culture, isn't it? It's all about self. It's all about me enjoying life. You know, your schedule and your debit card statement can tell you more than you think about what is truly important to you. So you have busyness. You have pleasure. And then I think a big cultural drift. If you just go with the flow of culture, you will drift towards uh, being pulled towards living for success, and it will become a driving thing. In fact, some of you 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 struggle with this, and there's just something within you. You're so driven, and you don't know. You haven't really paused to ask what's driving me. But life has become all about getting ahead or achievement. Every opportunity you see is a chance to advance and climb one more rung on the ladder, get the next upgrade. And and when you live in this place, what ends up happening is you you are not, you'll end up completely missing out on spirit-led opportunities, opportunities that God places right in front of you. You just don't have any time or bandwidth for it. And it's not even on your radar. You're too driven. And oftentimes the, the most important places we're called to pour our lives into aren't the flashiest. Have you noticed that? It's getting down on the carpet or in the lawn with your grandkids. It's taken some time to, to spend with your, your toddler. An important question to ask yourself is what's driving me? What's driving me? Because when you're driven by achievement and success, you, you don't experience peace. Because you think if I can just get to the next level, then, then I'll be there. But have you ever noticed when you get there, there is moved, and now there's a new there? And it's like a treadmill. It's like what we preach through the whole book of Ecclesiastes. I've been there, done that, tried everything. You don't get there. You just keep trying more, and there's no peace. There's no fulfillment found there. Now, if you're here and you're just checking out God's Church in the Bible, maybe you're not a Jesus follower yet, you can kind of pick and choose what you want to do with this today. And I think actually taking Paul's advice about being careful how you live um, will actually make your life a lot better. Um, You can pick some good things for living in, in this message. But let me just say for Christians, this isn't optional. We have a call to live life differently with a different focus to live for something beyond ourselves for to live for his kingdom, to live in the light of eternity. And that's what Paul's going to address in Ephesians chapter 5 today. So if you have your Bibles and you want to start turning over, you can follow along there or follow along on the screen behind me. But like I said, we're, we're in the second half of the book of Ephesians. And if you've, you're just joining this series, I encourage you to go back and read the first three chapters because Paul sets up the, some really important theology about the gospel and about the fact that God loved you first and reached down and pulled you from darkness to life, from death to life, from darkness to light. And life now is lived as a grateful response to what he's done for us. And you got to have that foundation because the second half is all about how we live our lives as a grateful response to what he's done. And so he launches this whole section, the second half of the book of Ephesians, by urging us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called to walk. This is a journey. Life is a journey. Sometimes you get off off the path. You got to get yourself back on the path. Walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have a high calling to be his light in this world. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So that sets this all up. And so we talked about conflict and anger in our families and how Paul says, get rid of it. Get rid of bitterness Get rid of anger quickly. Don't, don't let the sun go down on it. Do away with it quickly or it will eat away at your soul and your relationships. And last week we saw how, how there's two options regarding when, when we've been wronged. Because guess what? In life, you will get hurt. People will wrong you. So sometimes your anger, it's justifiable. Paul says still deal with it quickly. And you have two options regarding those who have wronged you. You can either go to bitterness and hold bitterness in your heart and unforgiveness, or you can go to forgiveness. And for Jesus followers, it's not optional. Jesus says, forgive, forgive. Let go of the bitterness. Move to forgiveness. And so the takeaway verse for last week, um, there's so many wonderful verses. I said this has been one of the most repeated verses in our family as we've raised our kids. And we just love this. In fact, I think you all, if you have kids, this should be a memory verse in your house. You should repeat it often. And, And Paul told us this. This was where we left off. He said, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you that we're called to have grace for each other, recognizing we all blow it sometimes, kind and compassion. We're called to forgive each other. Why? Because that's what your Savior did for you. He forgave you. He gave you life. He gave you grace that you didn't deserve. And so we're called to offer that to others. In fact, he goes on in verse 1 of chapter 5. He says this. here's Here's how you do that. You follow God's example, therefore as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Paul makes a statement here, and it's so important. You're going to follow God's example just like Christ gave himself up for you. Why? Well, it comes from understanding who you are. You are a dearly loved child of God. Now, we have this kind of idea floating around in our, in our culture that sort of everybody is a child of God. And from the sense that humanity is precious, we are made in God's image, that he loved this world enough that he came to die for this world, that he desires that none should perish, that is absolutely true. But if you've not placed your faith and trust in Jesus, the adoption hasn't occurred yet. And so when you see talk about the family of God, what Paul's talking about is, hey, um, there's the people of God and there's the nations all over the world that were estranged and were outside and they've been adopted in, brought in by trusting in Jesus through the work of what Jesus did on the cross. And now there's a new humanity you've been brought in, you've been adopted into the family of God by Christ Jesus and by his work for you. And, and to understand adoption and why this is such a big deal, I think we understand adoption a little bit in our culture. Some of you, I've got some friends that, you know, adopted, a pastor friend adopted a, a child from China, adopted a child from Haiti, completely changed the direction of their life, right? Completely re I mean, a new identity and a new future, a brand new future than what they would have had. And so I think we, we think of that, or we think of adopting cute little babies sometimes, but in the ancient culture, um, people almost never adopted babies because at this point in time, a lot of children were abused. In fact, children were left to die. Oftentimes it was called exposure. If you didn't want a kid, you just left them out to die. Infant mortality was so high that only half of children lived until their 20th birthday. And so they had a whole different framework when it when it came to... to children and came to understanding adoption. In fact, um, one of the reasons why Christianity spread so fast in the first century is because when people would discard some of these babies, literally discard them out on the trash heap, the Christians would come and they would take that child because they remembered Jesus' words, let the little children come to me, and they would care for that child. And and people would see the love that and caring for people in the plague because they weren't afraid to die because Jesus conquered death. That was one of the things, a couple of the things that contributed towards, like, this amazing thing of this, this obscure rabbi. All of a sudden, his movement spread all over the Roman world. So in the first century, adoption was looked at very differently. You didn't adopt babies. You usually adopted uh, kids that grew up and made something of themselves. And so here's how it worked. In fact, you, you remember Julius Caesar, maybe some of you, high school junior high history. You remember Julius Caesar adopted who? Come on, you history boss. Augustus. Augustus, right? And he became Augustus Caesar, um, who was the uh, emperor when Jesus was born. So you you would normally adopt a child that had grown up, had made themselves. So if you look at your kids and go like, man, these kids are a train wreck. I'm going to go pick their kids. They turned out better. Literally, this is how it worked, right? And so they would pick a kid over here who was, and, and adopt them into their family. And here's what that meant. It was both an heir. You were establishing an heir to the inheritance, to the estate, to the throne. And then you were also inviting someone into a new family with all the privileges and responsibilities that that, that came with. And so all of a sudden, maybe a child was not a member of royalty, but now they've been brought in, and they're a member of royalty, and that means an inheritance that's beyond anything they could have imagined. But it also means privileges and responsibilities that are completely different than back when you were just some, you know, Joe Schmo over here in the corner, right? you've been given an inheritance in Jesus and, and you see this language all over in fact in Paul writes about us being joint heirs with Christ here's what that means Jesus is the eldest brother it all belongs to him the inheritance in this culture belongs to him and he said i'm going to i I want to share it with all my other brothers and sisters as child as part of the family of God you're joint heirs in an inheritance that's beyond anything you can imagine But you also have privileges and responsibilities that are different. There's something new about your identity. And so he says you got to live out of this place of understanding you are a dearly loved child. You've been adopted. You've been forgiven. You've been given a new identity. There's something new true about you. So that sets up some of this really countercultural stuff that we're about ready to read, starting in verse 3. Here's what it says. But among you, among you, these dearly loved children, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving." So he calls them, again, he says, for God's holy people. What does the word holy mean? Set apart. You've been called to a special purpose. You, You have a new identity, and you've been called to a new purpose, to live for a new kingdom. You were living for yourself, for your pleasure, for meeting your needs, for your gratification, for your success, and you've been called to something new and something different. You're God's holy people. And so there's something new that's true about you. You've been pulled from the trash heap up into the palace. Now live like a child of the king. There used to be a ministry uh, through Youth mission called King's Kids. I like it. That's the idea. You're King's Kids. You have a new identity, a new calling, a new set of privileges, and, and a new set of responsibilities. And so he says, he, he highlights a couple of things here. He highlights sexual immorality, sexual sin, and really, this comes from the Greek word pornea, which is the root word of pornography. But it's a broad word in the culture that means any kind of sexual sin. Anything outside of what the New Testament, what the Bible would say is God's standard. Which is that sex, sexuality is a, is a beautiful thing, and it brings warmth to relationships and intimacy. But it's meant to be in the context of marriage between a com- two committed people, a man and a woman in the context of marriage. Anything outside of that would fall in this. And in that context, he says, it's meant to bring warmth to the home. And it's a thing of beauty and intimacy. It's kind of like I heard one pastor friend of mine uh, talked about it like it's like a fireplace. You light a fire in a fireplace and it brings light to the house. You light it on the living room floor and it burns things down. And so he says, hey, Get rid of that. But then also, you know, and you're probably not surprised to be in church and somebody's mentioning or highlighting, you know, that. But then greed, and we don't talk as much about greed, do we? We don't talk that much about greed in our – this is that constant desire for more and the idea that what I get is actually for me. It's, it's the opposite of generous living with our lives, with their time, with their stuff. It's greed. It's sometimes it's lust for more, whether it's a relationship that, that's out of bounds, whether it's you know, a relationship that someone else has that you wish you had. And so he highlights these two things, and when it comes to these two things, there is a drift of culture and a pull of culture. Uh, the book of Ephesians has been labeled the epistle for today because it's like Paul could have written this directly to our culture, isn't it? And here's, as I've studied through some of this stuff, when it comes to sexuality, Amanda, the pull of our culture is it's your body, do whatever you want with it, right? That if it, if it feels good, do it. As long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. Now, we fail to observe the fact that it always hurts someone else. In fact, Paul says it does something to your soul. See, because culture says sex is just a physical thing, but God's word says, no, actually, it's a, it's a mingling of souls. There's something deeper going on, which is why Paul, in Corinthians, he identifies this particular sinful be- behavior in this particular uh, area as being particularly damaging to the soul. It does something to you. So it does hurt someone. It hurts you. And you're a child of God that God really loves. It hurts people. It hurts people. But basically, the cultural narrative is sleep with whoever you want, right? I mean, we have whole apps in the culture. Swipe right. Hooking up. And that's the ethic. And it's funny as I, not funny, it's tragic. But as I go and look at modern culture, and I've gone back and read some literature from the first century from ancient Rome and Greece. We're just heading right back there. They were actually a little worse than our culture. The drift of our culture, you think we're bad? They were, they were just as bad when it came to this thing and the, and the drift of the culture of do, do what feels good. Do what feels good. In fact, just like some people have the idea that Christian ethics around sexuality are prudish or repressive, they had the same sort of idea back then. But Paul says, no, you've been pulled actually from darkness into light. Their culture would say enlightenment is you, when you find freedom to do whatever you want, kind of like the 60s, a new age of expression. Do whatever you want with your body. Paul said, no, actually, freedom is found in the light, in aligning your life and your behavior with what God says is the standard, with what he says is the way that lines up. And actually, the way you're, you're going to find really ultimate joy and fulfillment in life, so he talks about that. And then greed, greed, and man, our culture—what does it tell you? More he, well, I remember a, a saying: "He who dies with the most toys wins." It's kind of a kind of like have all the fun you can have, get all you can get, get all the success you can get, squeeze every last drop out of it. It's for you. And we often say around here, life is for you, it's, but it's not about you. And we get those two things mixed up all the time to our own detriment. And then he talks about the way we speak and how often our mouths can lead us into sin. How often our mouth can lead us and we can turn things that actually God takes very seriously into crude humor. Have you noticed that? And actually... Um, there's plenty of people who make really good money in careers doing that as a living, right? And Paul's not saying humor is bad. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying be careful when you begin to make light of sin. When you begin to joke around and, and make light of it, because oftentimes that's the doorway that brings you right into it. He says instead, here's the antidote. Thanksgiving. That seems kind of odd. Like, okay, the antidote to that kind of behavior is thanksgiving. Yeah, but thanksgiving is to be a, um, not just a practice, but a lifestyle of a Christian, to live a thankful life, thankfulness for all that God has done for you. Remember, you were left on the trash heap. He says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. If you place your trust in him, he's brought you from death to life. He's seated you in the heavenly realms, even though you're sitting in your chair. What's deeper and more true about you is you're part of the family of God. You're part of his family. And so you live out of a grateful response, thankfulness for what God's done for you. In fact, this is the antidote to greedy, self-focused behavior, thankfulness. Have you noticed it's hard to be thankful and self-centered at the same time? When you're just so grateful for what God's done and for you look at the blessings you have in your life as things from him, but things that that they don't like aren't things you have to like, clench your hands around and hang on to, but they're just like, wow, this is a gift. Thank you, Lord, for this family that I'm in. Thank you, Lord, for for my spouse. Thank you for the blessings you place. Thank you that you gave me a, a camper and I get to get away sometimes on the weekend and refresh. I mean, we have so many things to be thankful for. The first and foremost for the life he's given, for the new identity he's given, for the grace he's given us. Paul says live into that. Live into that. You don't get rid of the other stuff just by trying really hard and removing it. You replace it with something better. If you notice that, I mean that's something you hear like habits, addictions, right? Replace it with something better. And in this this point Paul says for a believer that's thanksgiving. That's a lifestyle of thankfulness. And he goes on and says this in verse 5. And this is this is a little sobering. But this is what, what Paul writes. This is the word of God. He says this, for, for Of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Don't. Engage in this kind of thing, is what he's saying. Don't make this your lifestyle, your direction. And he, and he highlights this idea that, that ultimately um, Jewish thinking in the first century was that at the root of all other sins was the sin of idolatry, placing something else at the center of our lives as the thing we look to and serve in order to try to get fulfillment out of that. And we tend to do that in our culture in all kinds of different ways, don't we? Not least of is what? Pleasure, busyness, success. Those things we look to constantly to try to find fulfillment and meaning, to fill that space within our soul that needs, that was created only for God to be at the center. We try to fill it with all sorts of other things. um, And Paul says, these are actually gods in our culture. You see that, don't you? Sex is an idol in our culture, isn't it? It's an idol. Greed, possession, the accumulation of more, whether it's status, more, whether it's physical relationship, whether it's just more stuff, more experiences. Greed, the idea that what is placed in my hands is for me. It's all for me. It's an idol in our culture. And what Paul says here is actually um, be cautious, look at your life, because behavior can be indicative of, of a heart condition. You know, it's possible that for, for people to even to grow up in church, for it just to be sort of a cultural thing, you grow up, you sit in the row, you know, get involved, but it's just a social thing, basically, and you never come to a really embracing the gospel Placing your faith and trust in Jesus, it's just the sort of church, it's being a good person, it's going to church, it's maybe even giving a little, or, or maybe it's like serving a little bit, and you think, that gets me in with God, that tips the scale. But there's no transformation in life. Big theological word, sanctification, which is the process of the Holy Spirit moving in your heart and life. And Paul says, hey, actually a warning. If your lifestyle is characterized by a drive towards these sort of things, there's idolatry in your heart. Check your heart. Another place they will say, check and make sure you're in the faith. Check and make sure you've really trusted, that you've really experienced his grace and his salvation. And that comes, how? By trusting in what he did for you. Calling out to him. Receiving his grace. It's a free gift, but it has to be Received. Not that we don't stumble and fall. You look at these verses, they are sobering. Not that we don't stumble and fall because we do. That's why Paul talks about our walk with God being literally walking with the Holy Spirit, staying in step with the Holy Spirit. I think that's why he says walk in a manner worthy of your calling. It's a journey. And sometimes we like to take bunny trails. Uh, You you ever like climb the monument and there's those trails you're not supposed to go on because it causes... Yeah, and kids, you like to take, those are the trails you want to take, right? Pretty soon you end up right by a giant cliff. And it brings destruction spiritually in your life. And we do this all the time. And the constant call in the New Testament is repentance. That you repent literally means turn around. You've been walking away from God in this season, turn around, come back toward him. You know, the mark of of spiritual maturity in a believer's life is when you fall down, you get up and run to your father quickly for forgiveness. It's not that you never fall. Not that you never stumble. There's grace. There's mercy. But you get up and you get back in step with the Holy Spirit. God, I've gotten out of step with you. I got self-focused. I stumbled into that sin or that habit again. Forgive me. Let me get back in step with you. That's the spiritual journey. That's the journey of sanctification. You know, something else you see when it comes to like these ethics that we see in a lot of Paul's letters, He says in another place, I think it's Colossians, like the basic idea is don't expect people who aren't followers of Jesus to live like this. Of course they're going to drift with what the culture says. See, we like to shout at culture more than we often like to look at our own lives and say, am I staying in step with the Spirit? See, it comes from an understanding of the kingdom of God. The inheritance, that language and inheritance in the kingdom of God. That you're a joint heir. But there's, there's nothing better you could live your life for. Jesus said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Jesus talks about the kingdom of God being like a guy who goes out in a field and finds a buried treasure. And all of a sudden, nothing else is important. He sells everything so he can get that because it's so much more valuable. He talks about a merchant that finds a pearl that's worth more than anything. He sells it and gets that because it's worth more than anything. And you have an inheritance in the kingdom of God that's worth more than anything that you could live for today. I love the way C.S. Lewis describes it. He says it's like a book where uh, like every chapter gets better and it never ends. See, we have sometimes a boring view of heaven, clouds, harps, whatever. No, eternity. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. It's beyond anything you can comprehend. It's amazing. It's amazing. For some of you, you're not bookworms. Some of you, you're bookworms. You're like, man, that's amazing. And like your heart rose up. For some of you, it's like the, that amazing Netflix series um, and it doesn't end. You know, when you finish the Netflix series and then you're like, oh no, now honey, we got to find a new series. And you feel like part of you is gone. Eternity beyond what you can comprehend. That's why Paul says, we see like in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. He says, I was caught up in heaven and saw things that like humans weren't even permitted to speak. It was amazing. It's the inheritance you have in the kingdom of God. He goes on, he says this, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. You are on the junk heap. You've been brought into the palace. You're king's kids. Live as children of the light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Righteousness, a right relationship with God and other people. Goodness, a way of living towards those around us that mirrors the goodness of our God. We have a good God. We live in a way that mirrors him. And truth, that God defines truth, not culture. Not you. Not me. Your truth. No, there is truth. And discovering what God says, the creator of the universe, is true. And living your life aligned to that is living in the light rather than in the the darkness. And he says, and find out what pleases the Lord. A little bit later, he's going to say, understand what the will of the Lord is. And oftentimes, I think we seek the will of God in big deal decisions in our lives. You know, we're praying about, should we take this new job or new position? Or should we start up this new venture or ministry or business or Should I marry this person? And we really seek God. And that's good. Seek God in those times. But oftentimes we seek God in the big deal things of our lives that seem big deal, but we ignore him on all the little stuff. What he's plainly spoken. How we live our lives day in and day out. You know, it's often the accumulation of a lot of small decisions that determine where you end up in life. And we, we tend to minimize the small decisions in life, but in the end, they, they add up to be the big decisions. It's like when you're 20 and you hear how about Albert Einstein talking about compound interest, you know, one of the wonders of the world, and how if you just put away, I can't remember, 50 bucks or whatever, a month or a week, you'd be a multimillionaire by the time you're 65, and you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Then you're in your 40s going, you know, that doesn't seem so far away anymore. I should probably... Think about that. Oops. It's those relationships that you don't invest into. There's always something else that's more important. There's always something else, a distraction. Before you know it, I mean, they say one of the one of the best things you can do for the cohesiveness of your family is to eat dinner together like a few times a week. Man, this is hard for us in our family. Maybe it's hard for you too. So easy just to like to be going different directions, to be in different rooms, on different screens. So it's those little things in life. It's taking care of those little things that have the ability to turn around and become a big deal thing in your life. It pleases the Lord when you begin to pay attention, to live carefully, when it comes to the little things. Verse 11 says, And having, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful to even mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. That is why it is said, and I think this was like a a hymn, like a worship song like we sing up here. Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And Paul's saying, hey, wake up. Wake up about the way you live your life. When it comes to life before God, like, it's all open to him. Nothing gets past him. It's all open to him. How, I think Paul would say, how do you feel about your, your Savior, you know, playing a time-lapse video of the last week? How do you feel about that? Because he's there. Scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. Whatever it is. Like I said, your schedule, your debit card statement tells a lot about your priorities. How do you feel about God going over that? He's there. He's there. So he goes on. And this is where we started. Coming back, he says, be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. But he doesn't end there. He says this, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. And here's the truth. If you are not careful about the way you live, you're just going to drift with the current of culture. Whatever it says, like, just keep adding to your plate. Busyness is a badge of honor. You know, busyness isn't a spiritual fruit. I've checked. It's not in the list. Life just being crazy about pleasure driving, whether it's, you know, some of the behaviors Paul references back here to sort of do whatever you want, or whether it's more of like, hey, life just becomes all about me and enjoyment and recreation, and I've got no time, no bandwidth left for anything else, or whether it's that drivenness leading you to constantly be driving for success to the point where you neglect relationships and those things that later on in life you'll say were the most important things. We tend to miss out on relationships and community because of crazy schedules. Are you available to others? We have a phrase around here we're going to be talking about more going into the fall. Available friend. One of the roles we want to live into as disciples, as followers of Jesus. Are you available to others? That's part of a call. How many sports are your kids playing and why? Are are you driving that? Is there something driven in you? Is there something that needs to be reined in there? Is all your energy just being spent, all your time on your stuff? What about the hours that you have in your day? If you don't have time to serve others or volunteer or read your Bible and pray, but you have 10 hours to binge watch Netflix? There's things like Paul would say, be careful, be careful. Otherwise, you're going to miss the opportunities. Making the most of every opportunity. He's not talking about just opportunities to make more No, you're going to miss the spirit-led opportunities to connect with the people in front of you. You're going to miss the spirit-led opportunities to pray for others and speak into their lives because you're just running too fast and driving too hard. You don't have the time. You don't have the bandwidth to be available to people, to be available to, to your family. And Paul says, hey, it's deeper than just like a, a physical thing. There's actually a spiritual element to it. It says, be careful how you live. Make the most of every opportunity. You got to be attentive to the spirit. Why? Because the days are evil. Like the, the current of the age is to drive you in a direction that eventually pulls you to evil. The, the current of culture isn't neutral. The pull of the current age it's actually referred to in the New Testament as this evil age. And, and, and there's a lord of this age, the enemy, Satan, who's described as prowling like a roaring lion, waiting to devour, deceive, or distract you. I'm excited. In a couple of weeks, we're going to launch into, in chapter 6, two or three weeks on spiritual warfare, starting September 9. I'm really excited about that. But there's a, really an enemy who wants to take you out. And here's the thing. He didn't just succeed if he gets you to, like, blow up your life. If he can just get you distracted enough that he knocks you off course for living for Jesus and he drives a wedge between you and Jesus, he'll take that. If he can get you to live for yourself, he's happy with that. There's a book called The Screwtape Letters that C.S. Lewis wrote. And its he makes this statement um, that the devil's really happy just keeping you distracted and and busy with all these things that seem real little, small sins, things that pull you off course, drive a wedge between you and God. And if you haven't read Screwtape Letters, there's like sort of this, it's a fictional story, obviously, of a, like a senior demon who's the uncle. He's got a nephew who's like the, um, the, uh trainee to tempt people, right? The junior demon. And the uncle's writing him advice about how to tempt people and draw them off course. And here's what he writes. Listen to this. He says, this is the senior demon talking. He says, you will say, he's talking about distracting people and getting them into small things. He says, you will say that these are very small sins and doubtless like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. He's referring to God. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge um, the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards. Cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope Soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. It's insightful. And that's often the way the enemy works. If he can get you distracted, busy, completely obsessed with the next rung of the ladder, self-focused, living for yourself, for pleasure, he doesn't have to get you to blow up your life. He's going to cause you to be ineffective for the one thing that really matters. Seeking first the kingdom, living for Jesus, experiencing a depth of relationship with him. So here's what I want you to ponder this week. I'm going to put a little plus and a minus up here. It's often the small things that matter the most, isn't it? Small investments in a relationship. Small things. So whether it's a small thing in your life, whether there's a habit, whether there's um, just, you know, crazy craziness that's keeping you away from connecting in a relationship that you know you need to be investing in. Or maybe it's a bigger thing that, that feels like it has the potential of derailing you in life. Here's what I want you to ponder. This week, not a big list, but one thing. What needs to be plused in your life and what needs to be minused? One thing. So one thing that maybe God, the Holy Spirit, is tapping on you and saying, hey, pay attention to that. Pay attention to that. What's distracting you? What has the bulk of your thoughts and your attention? What's masquerading as most important? Are you just going with the flow? Are you drifting towards what society says is most important? Maybe it's the pace your family's moving at, that drivenness in your heart that's causing you to take, do some things, take some steps that you know. A relationship suffering? Do you have peace in your life? What needs to be minus, but also what needs to be plus? What spirit-led opportunity are you missing out on right now because you're too busy? He wants you to be a responsive follower to his spirit, to be available to others. Would you do that this week? Would you just ask what needs to be plus? What needs to be minus? Don't make a giant list. Just pick one thing that the Holy Spirit wants to work in your life on. Would you stand? I want to put this scripture up here again. There are so many amazing, like, one or two-liner scriptures in here that if we really took them to heart, it would transform the way we live. And so I want to read this together. And I'm asking you this week, if you'd take this scripture and you'd ponder it along with that question of what needs to be plused or minused in your life. Let's read this one time all together, and then I'll pray for you. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Let me pray for you. Father, I just, uh, as we bow our heads and close our eyes, I, I imagine there may be someone in this room that hasn't crossed that line of really trusting you for their salvation. And so if you want to receive the free gift of grace and live as a child of God, if that's you in the room, why don't you pray a prayer like this right after me? Lord Jesus, I believe in you. I believe you're the son of God that you died and rose again. Forgive me, give me life, and welcome me into your family. I want to live my life for you. And Lord, for all my other friends, would you just remind us, how to do this. Would you show us by your Holy Spirit what needs to be plused, what needs to be minused in our life? That we would be careful how we live. That we would live with wisdom. That we would make the most of every spirit-led opportunity in this age. That we would live for your kingdom and your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.